0: I'm really glad to be here with you, Um, and only somebody who's not from the South would assume that somebody with a Southern accent is country. Um, I'm I'm not country. I'm Southern. I'm small-town Southern. I grew up in South Carolina, or South Carolina as we say, Um, and so uh, anyway, it's a privilege to be here with you today. Um, I'm going to do my best to unpack for you a word that God has been stirring in my own heart. A wrestle, a struggle, a call, uh, really to to do what you sang just a moment ago. uh, To choose in the lowest valley to lift high the name of Jesus and to stand on his faithfulness. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, I want to encourage you to open those. Uh, I happen to be of the opinion that you should always come with your Bible You should always come with something to take notes, like you believe somebody might actually say something that's worth remembering, Uh, because most of you are not equipped to uh, remember that without writing it down. Neither am I. So it's a good practice. I want to encourage you uh, to do that today as we walk through Psalm 27. Psalm 27. At the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020, somebody in my neighborhood uh, posted a sign on the way out. Painted on board, not cardboard, board board. Painted uh, and then fastened to the stop sign with bolts. And the sign simply read this. It will get better. As uh, the pandemic wore on and I occasionally drove out of the neighborhood and passed that sign, I wondered to myself... Will it? Will it get better? Will it get better in the way that they expect or hope that it will get better? And then, almost two years later, as mysteriously as the sign appeared one day, it was gone. And I wondered again did it get better? I mean, some things did, but some things are worse. Did it get better or did they just give up? I don't know. Who knows? But inside all of us is this tenacious desire to believe that things will get better. We seem to be locked in on the idea that things should improve, that life should be on the up and up, that we should be upwardly mobile. After all, didn't Jesus say he came to give us abundant life? Isn't that what that means, or at least a part of it? Surely that's a part of our expectation. But when our present reality is in conflict with our hopes and dreams of a better life, y'all, let's be honest, we struggle. And often as believers, we struggle with God. Can we be honest this morning? Sometimes it's hard to reconcile the idea of the goodness of God with our current circumstance. Anybody in the room feel that besides me? Anybody else have that wrestle? To to be sure, there there are parts of our lives where we know God's goodness, right? Not everything is hard. Not not everything is discouraging. Not everything is difficult. But some parts are. Some parts are just plain disappointing. Others are devastating. For some of us, we're not just talking about unmet expectations. We're talking about... Extreme discouragement. We're talking about being disheartened. We're we're talking about sometimes being and feeling incapacitated. And the real wrestle for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, is that sometimes it seems like the source of our greatest struggle seems to have come from God Himself. It was His doing. He put you in this family, He gave you this rebellious kid. He formed your body, or it was a result of his direction. He's the one who led you into this. You you were just trying to be obedient, just following his instruction. He told you to go here, to marry this person, to take this job, to give that money away. Or even worse, it seems to be a result of his disregard. He, He could have prevented it, right? He could have. He could have stopped it. He could have changed it, he could have delivered, he could have healed, he could have kept someone alive, but he he hasn't. And all of that leaves us struggling with our, not just struggling with our life, but struggling with God. Listen, our less than ideal reality poses questions that sooner or later we're all going to have to face an answer. How do we live with hope in the face of disappointment? I mean, let's be honest, anybody in the room... Not been disappointed. Not been disappointed in the last week. It's a regular occurrence. It's a part of life. How do do we keep going when we're disappointed? How do we keep going when life is hard? How do we put one foot in front of the other when the the, uh, obstacles seem insurmountable? How do we still pursue God when he doesn't do what we wanted him to do? When will it get better? You know what, we aren't the first people to ask that question. Even King David, the man after God's own heart, faced the brutal reality that life is painful and hard. So this morning, we're going to walk through Psalm 27, and we're going to see how God's chosen king navigated the disappointments and difficulties of life with faith in his God. Alright, you ready? We're going to blow through this really quickly and I'm going to make a couple of observations that I think will set the stage for us. Alright, first let's do this. Let's look at David's reality. Because you know the honest truth is sometimes we have a rather fantastical view of what the life of Bible heroes was like. We imagine it to be all perfect and beautiful. So let's look at Psalm 27 and let's look at what David's reality was. Alright, you ready? Look at verse 2. David said, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, though an army besiege me. Look, in verse 2 and 3, we find out that David's being pursued by evil men who want to absolutely devour and destroy him. In verse 3, he's besieged by an army. He's cut off from the supplies of life, and he's overwhelmed and at war. Look at verse 7. Hear hear my voice when I call. Be merciful and answer me. Listen, he's desperate and needy for God to hear his cries. In in verse 9, he seems to acknowledge that he's sinful because he admits in this verse that he's deserving of God's righteous anger. Don't, Don't turn me away in anger. Why would you ask God to do that unless you knew you deserved to be turned away in anger? In verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me. Listen, He's been deserted by those closest to him. His own father and his mother, it feels like the ultimate rejection. He's totally abandoned and left alone. No advocate, no friend, no family to comfort or care for him. Look at verse 11, teach me your way, lead me in a straight path. Why? Because of my oppressors. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Look, he's oppressed. He's subjected to the ruthlessness of his foes. In verse 12, he's, they are eager for his own destruction, and they're plotting against him and maliciously lying about him. Their words are violent and unjust attacks against him. Nothing about this Seems good or right and fair. Let me ask you this morning do you think this is what David expected when he submitted to God's call to be king? Do you think he anticipated that things would go this way? Is this what you thought would come your way when you surrendered to Jesus? Pro- probably not. But how David reacted to his painful reality is remarkable to me. Now let's look at that David's response. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Listen, he's unafraid. He's standing firm. In fact, it says his enemies are the ones who are going to stumble and fall, not him. And in verse 4, he says, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek. Listen, he's still longing to see and worship God, to draw up close to him. Verse 5, for in the day of trouble, he'll he'll keep me safe in his dwelling. Look, he's secure. He's confident. He's set on a rock. In verse 6, he's anticipating the opportunity to be in the presence of God, with the people of God, sacrificing with shouts of joy and singing with gladness and making music to the Lord. Verse 7, he just says, hear my voice when I call, be merciful to me. My my heart says if you seek his face, look, he's, he's praying for mercy. He's seeking the face of God. He's not bitter or angry or turning away from God. He's not demanding. He's humble. He still wants a relationship with God. He still believes that God is worth pursuing verse 9, he humbles himself again and acknowledges that he deserves God's wrath. There's, there's no indignation. There's no self-righteousness. In verse 10, he says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. He's trusting God, his father, to welcome him in. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Look, he's asking God to instruct him and lead him. In verse 12, he casts himself on God for protection and deliverance from the schemes of the enemy. And then look at verse verse 13. I'm still confident in this. I'll, I'll see the goodness of the Lord. In the land of the living, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Let me ask you a question Does that psalm end like you thought it would when you started? Does that response match his circumstance, his reality? He's expectant and full of hope, even in the face of great difficulty and hardship and disappointment and pain and discouragement and attack. He's confident of the goodness of God. In verse 14, he's patient. He's willing to wait. He's calm. He's trusting. When I put David's response up against his reality, y'all, I'm stunned. I'm stunned. Honestly, I'm convicted because that's not my natural response when I'm confronted with disappointment and shattered dreams. How about you? That's your impulse? All that confidence, all that peace, all that grace, all that patience, is that you? Listen, David's pain is overwhelming. His situation is clearly desperate, but his faith and hope in God seem unaffected by his circumstances. How is he able to rise above all that chaos? How is David able to see clearly through the storm of his confusion, his pain and his disappointment? In the middle of all the heartache, David had three things, I think this passage shows us, that sustained him and kept him from falling into the chasm of despair. Three things that allowed David to walk faithfully with God through the hurt, Without stumbling into disbelief. And I want to tell you today that I believe you and I have the same three things. You ready? Here they are the revealed character of God, access to the presence of God, and the promise of eternal hope. The revealed character of God, access to the presence of God, and the promise of eternal hope. Listen to me, if you and I are going to survive the storms of life, and listen to me, they're coming. If they haven't already come, they will. If you're not in the middle of one, you might be in the middle of one tomorrow. Nobody knows when the storm is going to come, but they will come. And if you and I are going to navigate that, if we're going to endure hardship, if we're going to weather disappointment, listen to me, nobody experiences the fulfillment of every dream and expectation. Don't buy that lie. If we're going to walk through that without losing our faith, then we're going to need to hang on to these same three things just like David did, all right? Number one, the revealed character of God. Look at verse one, Psalm 27, verse one. Look at it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Listen to me. David does not start this psalm with a description of his circumstance. Don't miss that. The first verse is not a cry for help. The first verse is a declaration of faith and hope. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He starts with God. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. That's not incidental. It's not coincidental. It's not accidental. It is purposeful and necessary. Y'all, we would be so much better off if in any season we would start with what we knew about the character and heart of God and not with what we think about our circumstance or condition. Without reservation, no hesitation, David declares, the Lord is my life. He's my salvation. He's my stronghold. Listen, what he's saying in this, in essence, is that everything that is necessary for life, from beginning to end, is wrapped up and found in God. He's light. Light is life-giving. Salvation is rescue from death. Strength is sustaining. Everything about life is found in God. But don't miss this. David says the Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. It's personal to him. It's his God. God. In the rearview mirror, David could see a trail of the faithful, life giving, life saving, life preserving work of God. It wasn't theory for David. He knew God to be this way from experience. The character of God was a personal and intimate thing for David. But he goes on to declare that, that God is beautiful and worth pursue, pursuing. Look at verse 4. One thing, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You know what David's saying here? He's saying, God's beautiful. God's worth looking at. He's worth taking time to gaze on. He's worth seeking. He's worth dwelling with. God is beautiful and desirable above every other thing. One thing. One thing. Look at verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he'll keep me safe in his dwelling. He'll hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon the rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make music to the Lord. Listen, David is saying here that the only true source of safety and security is God himself. He's identifying God and God's presence God's character as being the source of joy. Verse 7, he asks God to to hear him, and so he's declaring, listen, God is a God who listens and hears prayer. He's a God who answers. He's a God who responds to us. He's a God who's attentive to us. In verse 7, he asks for mercy. Why would you ask for mercy unless you knew the person you were asking mercy from was a merciful person? In verse 8, He acknowledges that as his heart is drawn to God, that's the work of the Spirit in him. It's it's God in him drawing him to himself, indicating that God is, is one who wants to be sought and found. Listen to me. If God wanted to hide from you, he would, and you would never find him. But the Scripture says to us in Jeremiah 29, 13, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's the heart of God for us. That's what David is declaring here in verse 9 he acknowledges that God is a God who helps his people and in verse 10 David knows that God is a faithful God who never forsakes who never leaves us who never turns us away in verse 11 he asks to be taught and led acknowledging that God is a patient God who's willing to teach and lead his children And then verse 13 and 14, he knows God is a good God who does good and a God who can be trusted to show up, a God who's worth waiting for. Here's what David knew that you and I need to know. You can either look at your circumstance through the lens of the revelation of the character of God or you can look at God through the lens of your circumstance. Focusing on one will affect your view of the other. I want to say that again. You can either look at your circumstance through the lens colored by what you know about the character of God, or you can default to looking at God and assuming something about Him based on your circumstance. It matters what lens you look through. David's starting point was the revealed character of God, and it should be ours as well. Can I just tell you this? You should never start with your circumstance. Your understanding of your circumstance is limited. Your view is distorted. You need to start with the character of God. The second thing that David had that you and I have as well was access to the presence of God. Access to the presence of God. Look at verse 4. I love this verse. One thing I ask of the Lord. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Listen, in the face of unrelenting trouble, David's one thing, his sole desire, his singular request was to be with God. David wanted God more than he wanted pleasant circumstances. In fact, nowhere in this psalm does he ask God to change his situation. He doesn't ask God to defeat his enemies. He doesn't ask God to silence his foes. He doesn't ask God to end the war. He doesn't ask God to restore his relationships. None of it. The singular ask is to be in the presence of God and gaze on his beauty. He wanted to have his face fixed on the glorious goodness of God so he could take in the beauty of God even when his life was less than beautiful. God's presence was of inestimable value to him. David knew that the absence of trouble without the presence of God was not what he wanted or needed. Listen to me. David knew that the absence of trouble without the presence of God was not what he wanted or needed. Listen to me. You don't know the favor of God by your circumstance. You know this right. You live in one of the most most affluent areas in Atlanta, and there are people surrounded by you whose abundance exceeds yours, do you think that's a guarantee of God's favor on them? Do you think that's an indicator that God is with them and God is pleased with them just because their circumstance appears to be pleasurable? Are y'all going to talk to me or not? That was a yes or no question. I'm asking you, is, ple- or is abundance and pleasure and prosperity an indicator, is it an indicator of the favor of God? No, it's not. And yet, you and I so often long for that over the presence of God. David wanted relationship. He wanted to be received, welcomed, accepted by God. So in verse 7, he cries out, hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me. Don't give me what I deserve Answer me, because my heart says of you, seek his face. So your, your face, Lord, that's what I'm seeking. Y'all, too many times, we're not looking at the face of God. We're looking for the hand of God. We don't want God. We want what we think God can do. Can I just tell you this morning that your heart is really thirsty for God? You think what your heart needs is a change in your situation. But what your heart really craves is to be in the presence of God regardless of your circumstance. David had the revealed character of God. He had access to the presence of God. And then the third thing he had, and we have as well as this, the promise of eternal hope. Look at verse 13. I'm still confident of this. In the midst of a less than beautiful, less than desirable circumstance and situation, I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Endure. Don't give up. Don't lose faith. Wait for the Lord. David lived with an expectation that God was going to show up. David held on to the belief that better days were ahead for him. Now look at me, lots of people read this verse and think that it's the promise of a good life here. Because honestly, y'all, that's what we want to believe. We want to believe that God has promised us our best life now. But I'm pretty convinced that David was not looking to the immediate future, but towards eternity. I'm going to ask you a question. Is this really the land of the living? In the deepest spiritual sense, is this really the land of the living? Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on this passage, refers to earth as the land of the dying. And he points to heaven as the land of the living. You see, when you read the entirety of this psalm in context... It seems obvious to me that the goodness of God that David speaks of is not measured by pleasant circumstances, but by the presence of God. We've already established that his central longing was to be with God, not escape hardship. Listen to me. The joy of heaven is not primarily that you and I will be free of pain and suffering of this life. Though we absolutely will. The the scriptures promise us this. But listen, the joy of heaven is the presence of God. He is goodness. In fact, Paul would say to the Corinthian church, hey, if only for this life we have a hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. The goodness of God is not, never has been, nor will it ever be measured by our temporal condition think about this for just a second if God's goodness is measured in physical terms the way you and I like to measure it this is me, I'm going to be confessional here here's how I measure God's goodness ease, comfort pleasure, abundance freedom, safety health, peace and prosperity sound good to you? Isn't that that what we want? Isn't that what we gravitate towards? Let's be honest this morning. Don't play church with me. I'm not playing with you. This is what we think the good life is, this is what your neighbors are chasing, this is what all Atlanta is going after. And that's what we think the goodness of God is as believers. Let me tell you that. If that's the measure of God's goodness, then vast numbers of God's people around the world and throughout history are excluded from any hope of experiencing that kind of goodness. Get out of your southern, comfortable, Bible belt, prosperous Atlanta mindset and recognize that there are believers all around the world and throughout history who never have a hope of having the kind of life that most of us dream of and expect God to give us. You think about Christians in Ukraine, in China, in Afghanistan, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. You think they can expect God to give them the kind of life you expect God to give you? Listen to me. I'm, I'm... If your expectation of the goodness of God is not true for all Christians at all times in all places, then it's not a promise of God. It's an idolatrous attempt on your part to use God for your own selfish desires. If you're demanding from God, and you say, well, I'm not really demanding. I'm just pleading for it in prayer. No, you're demanding it. You're expecting God to do what you want to give you the kind of life. Why? Because that's what I do. I look at my circumstance and I'm like, I need you to change this. I don't like this. This is not what I was expecting. This is not what I signed up for. Really? What did Jesus say? Hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble. I don't know what we forget about that part. I don't know how we dismiss that. I don't know how we don't factor that into our expectation. But listen, when I demand that God give me goodness in this life, pleasure, comfort, peace, safety, security, abundance, when I demand that from him, listen, it's not me clinging to the promise of the goodness of God. It is me using God to try to satisfy my own idols of comfort and pleasure. I'm not serving God. I'm serving me. I'm not interested in his kingdom. I'm interested in mine. I just want a good life. I just want peace. I just want comfort. I just want safety. Listen, in his book, Shattered Dreams, Larry Krebs says this. this is, I've read this in the last couple of weeks, and it's so good. Until what's coming, eternity, until what's coming sustains us in what's ger- currently going on. All right? And Larry Krebs says, here's what's currently going on. Death, disease, starvation, and all kinds of discouragement and evil until what's coming sustains us in what's going on, we will cling to the false hope that the happiness we were created to enjoy is available here and now. We aren't going to make it through the struggles, sufferings, and disappointments in this life because we tell ourselves it will get better. You know this, right? At some point, that sentiment does not hold up. At some point, you can't expect to always be upwardly mobile. At some point, this physical body begins to deteriorate and fall apart. Your best days on this earth are not always ahead of you. Do you understand that? Can you look at that and acknowledge that? Y'all, that's not the trajectory of life in this body on this earth. It's not always up and up. Somewhere down the line, all of us will have to be forced to admit that things are not going to improve. I'm, at 63, I'm starting to come to terms with that. Okay? My body's not getting stronger. It's not getting better. I'm not more flexible than I used to be. I get down on the floor, I have to have one of my teenagers pick me up. My boys are big. My oldest, who's uh, almost 15... He's my child, not my grandchild, Um, (laughs) is 6'1 and 165 pounds with 300 pounds of attitude. And uh, I tell him on a regular basis, I need you to be big because somebody got to pick me up out of the wheelchair and put me in the bed. (laughs) Y'all, at some point, we have to acknowledge this. It's not all up and up. And when you and I cling to that dream and when we demand that, we set ourselves up for struggle and disappointment. But listen, that's not a reason to despair. It's not a reason to give up because we have a hope that extends beyond the grave. Look, church, we got to learn to expect heaven, to anticipate joy, to dream of being with God forever. We can bank on the promise of heaven and we can believe that God will do whatever is necessary to get us there. In January, the Lord gave me this verse. I memorized it. Man, it's just become life to me. Jude one twenty four. now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. Y'all, that's going to make me and everybody else a whole lot happier than just some temporary goodness in this life. David was attacked and abandoned, but he didn't lose hope. In fact, his faith was strengthened because he clung to the character of God, he pursued the presence of God, and he cultivated eternal hope. And, church, we got to do the same thing. This morning, I want to end by giving you some practical suggestions for some ways to live in these truths. If you haven't jotted anything else down, pull your phone out, get a piece of paper, and write this down. Otherwise, I'm going to assume you don't intend to do anything with this word except smile at me and nod your head and say, that was really good, preacher, which I really don't care about. I want you to get into the word of God and apply it to your life. I want to say this to you. You're responsible for what you hear. You're responsible to do two things. One, you're responsible to search the scriptures and see if what you've been told is right and true. And if it is, you're responsible to do it. You you don't get a bye because you forgot what was said in church. All right? You ready? See, I can say that stuff. I'm going to get on a plane this afternoon. Y'all got to deal with Billy later. (laughs) But you should. You should come in expecting God's life-giving word to change you. And it's not because the Holy Spirit sprinkled dust all over you. It's because you apply. Listen, blessed is the man who does what he hears. That's not what James says, but it's something like that. I can't call it up right now. (laughs) Don't be just hearers of the word. Be doers of it. And you can't do it if you don't know what to do. All right, stop looking at me and start writing. All right, number one, you got to cling to the character of God. you got to cling to the character of God. Listen, y'all, if we're going to delight in the revealed character of God, if we're going to hold on to it, then we're going to have to pay attention to all the ways that God has and is making himself known to us. John Piper says this. I love this. He says, you can't savor what you don't see. You can't cherish and desire and love and enjoy and treasure what you're not aware of. Christ is most magnified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And we cannot be daily satisfied in the depths of our soul in Christ if we don't see and savor Him. My point, Piper says, is that that can only happen by a steady meditation on the Word of God in the Bible. You want something other than your circumstance to focus on? Then get out of the bed, put your phone away, shut your computer, and gaze into the Word of God. And please don't give me this crap about you don't have time. If you're going to say that to me, bring your phone already pulled up to screen time. Show me your Facebook feed, your Instagram. Whatever it is, you have time. You make time for what's important. I'm looking at y'all, but y'all are working out. I know it. I can tell by looking at you. Those aren't just good genes. You're attentive to that. Paul said to Timothy, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things to come. Stop working on your body and start working on your heart and mind. Get into the Word of God. you got to read the Bible looking for God. When you read the Scriptures, don't look for yourself. Don't look for what to do. Start with this question. What does this tell me about the character of God? What does, it's one of the first questions I ask when I open the Scriptures. What does this tell me about who God is? Before the Scriptures were instruction, they were revelation. And when you see it, write it down. David did it. It worked for him. It was pretty good for him. Why don't you try it? David wrote a multitude of psalms. We call them psalms that describe the glory and greatness of God. And so meditate on what God shows you about himself. Look deeply into the wonder of who God is. Stop gazing at your circumstance. Here's the deal. Most of y'all can describe the trouble you're in way more than you can describe the character of God. There's something fundamentally wrong with that. I should be more familiar with the character of God than I am with my estimation of the trouble of my circumstances. So look at it. Look for Him. Study Him. Gaze on Him. Think about Him. Meditate on Him. Write about Him. Tweet about Him. Talk about Him to others. And figure out how you can stir up wonder in your own heart and the hearts of others by how you talk about how great and glorious and good God is. I want you to think about this week about how much time you spend talking about things that don't matter. And figure out how to talk about God. Talk to your children about it. Talk to your friends. Talk to your small group about it. Stop spending so much time in prayer requests talking about your trouble. Let's talk about the greatness of God and apply that to whatever I think my trouble is. All right, I got to fly here. All right, you ready? (laughs) Number two, number two, pursue the presence of God. Pursue the presence of God. Y'all, this is active. David said, My heart says, if you seek his face. And then he said, Your face, Lord, I'm going to seek. That's not sentiment, That's, that's commitment. You and I have open access to the presence of God. Do you know that? Hebrews 4.16 exhorts us to approach the throne of grace, God's throne of grace, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews 10 says we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Listen to me, church. We've been invited in. In fact, the way in for us was purchased by Jesus' blood. I'm about to mess some of y'all up. When you retreat from the place of prayer, when you draw back, when you don't push into the throne of grace, you actually despise the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. He laid down his life, he shed his blood, he tore open the veil so you and I can go in. And we said, Oh, I got so much to do. I'm so busy. I don't have time for that. I mean, I got to fix lunches. I got to get out the door to work. I got to do this. I got to do that. Really? That's more important? Jesus didn't die so you could fix lunch and send your kids to school so you could go to work and have a nice car. He died so you could come in and be with Him. So pursue Him. Press in. Why would we stand at a distance? Listen, nothing is more invaluable and more important than time in God's presence, and a primary way we experience that is in the Word of God in prayer. So maybe you just start by praying David's prayer, Psalm 27. Hey, God, one thing. Let me just ask one thing. I'm going to stop at one thing. Let, let, me, let me dwell in your house. Let me gaze upon your beauty. Let me seek you. God just let me do that. Let's just start there. Let's pursue that and let God handle everything else. Follow the entirety of Psalm 27 and pray what David prays. Ask God to lead you and teach you. Ask Him to show you mercy. Ask Him to welcome you in. Seek Him. The third thing we have to do is this is cultivate eternal hope. Cultivate eternal hope. All right y'all. This is one place where we need to repent. The honest truth is that many of us cannot imagine the blessing of eternity with Jesus because we are so busy thinking about the blessing of a good and happy life here and now. You cannot cultivate eternal hope. Listen to me. Listen to me. Look at me. Listen to me. You cannot cultivate eternal hope unless you stop fanning the flame of eternal hope. I'm going to say it again. You cannot cultivate eternal hope and fan the flame of earthly hope at the same time. You headed one direction or the other. Your hope is either in Jesus and eternity or it's in here and now and stuff and things and people and experiences. One way or the other, I'm going to give you three practical ways to cultivate eternal hope. I wish I had time to unpack these, but I'm going to do them quickly, all right? The first one is this, generosity. Generosity. Give some stuff away. Give something away until it hurts. Give something away until you no longer feel anchored to the things of the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Look, stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Y'all invest in the kingdom. Y'all are invested. We're, we, I do the same thing, y'all. We're invested in our kingdom, in here and now. Stop. Give it away. Give it away. Be generous. Listen, when you give it away, you're saying, hey, I'm not counting on this here now. I'm counting on eternity. Be generous. The second thing is this. Obedience. Obedience. Y'all, the essence of sin is me now. And God's call is for us to do it His way, to obey. Obedience is trusting God for delayed gratification. Obedience says, you know what? I'd rather do what He requires and experience difficulty and hardship here that satisfy my own desires and face judgment in eternity obedience is a way to anchor your heart in eternal hope and the third is this dream dream. do you know what God has promised you in heaven most of us don't really know if you grew up in the south and you listen to southern gospel music you think it's streets of gold and big old mansions That's not the essence of heaven, y'all. You need to look at the scriptures and figure out what has God promised you. What has he promised you? Because Colossians 3 says, hey, set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind and heart on that place where God is seated on the throne. 1 Peter 5.4 says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, You'll receive the crown of glory that will not fade away. I read it this I've read it the last couple of days in, in 1 Peter 5, and it's just been so, so good to me. Verse 10, 1 Peter 5, 10, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you. Make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Y'all, God has made us so many promises for eternity. Do you know what these are? Are you setting your mind and heart on that? I don't know if you noticed it, but those three little things, generosity, obedience, and dream, you know what the first letter spells? God. Set your mind and heart on him. Wait for him. Because you and I will his children one day experience the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Let's pray together. God, how thankful we are that you've not left us as orphans, but you've come to us and you've made a way for us to be restored to you. God, I'm thankful that what David experienced was just a picture of what Christ would experience on our behalf so that we could be restored to you. Just as David was surrounded by his enemies, so Jesus was surrounded by his. Just as David was lied about and forsaken and abandoned, so Jesus was lied about and forsaken and abandoned. Just like David endured, so Jesus endured because he had his mind and heart set on the joy that was before him. God, would you turn our hearts that direction? Trust in Jesus and lean into him knowing that He has promised us eternity in His presence by faith in His Son, Jesus. We pray this all in His name.